Then Solomon assembled the elders of Israel, all the heads of the tribes, the leaders of the ancestral houses of the Israelites before King Solomon in Jerusalem to bring up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord out of the city of David, which is Zion. The priests brought the Ark of the Covenant to its place in its most holy place. A cloud filled the house of the Lord, for the glory of the Lord filled the house. Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord and said, O Lord, God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth beneath, keeping covenant and steadfast love. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Even the highest heaven cannot contain you. Regard your servant's prayer toward the place of which you said, My name shall be there. Likewise, when a foreigner who is not of your people Israel comes and prays, then hear in heaven your dwelling place. This is the word of the Lord. One hundred eighteen years ago, a young preacher with a young wife and a new baby came in a covered wagon to found a Methodist church. There was no town here. There was no state here. It was Indian Territory. Thirty-four years later, that congregation had been through a brush arbor, into a wood building, into a brick building when they envisioned this magnificent place. 1927, the cornerstone was laid and the building was underway. They did such a wonderful job of planning that no addition was needed for the next 35 years. But in 1962, what we now call the Children's Building was added on, and that brought so much new space, so much new uh, possibilities that no other addition was needed for 40 more years. And then in 2002, we completed the Jubilee Center. May 5th, 2002, we had the official opening of the new Jubilee Center. We wanted that to be very special. We had a naming contest, a committee of laypersons and clergy. They were not told who had submitted each name. Finally, they decided the Jubilee Center, which turned out to be Sheila Parr's recommendation. Yes, this is, this is a great name. In the Hebrew Scriptures, every 25 years, every 50th year, debt's forgiven. Everybody gets to start over again with a clean, clean beginning. Well, we decided we wanted a red ribbon to run all the way around the building. We wanted hundreds of pairs of scissors. Since this name comes from the Hebrew Scriptures, how about having the shofar, the person who blows the ram's horn at High Holy Days at Temple Israel or Congregation B'nai Amuna come? I called our friend Rabbi Sherman. I asked, would that be appropriate? Oh, sure, he said. He gave me the name and number of the person who's done that for years at Temple Israel. He agreed to come. He came with his prayer shawl that morning and this ram's horn that had belonged to his grandfather and then to his father and that he now used on high holy days. So we had readings with children, youth, adults. Cut the ribbon, the ram's horn sounded, and everybody went inside. Don't you suspect it was a glorious day when they opened Solomon's temple? Rabbi Gunter Plout says that David, of course, founded the new capital city in the year 1000 before the Common Era. Jerusalem is now more than 3,000 years old. That David reigned in Jerusalem for approximately 30 years, and then Solomon became king in approximately uh, 970. He immediately began work on the temple. It took seven years to get it built. And now came the dedication. That's what today's text is all about. Coming to dedicate the temple. 
number one. The first thing they decided is we need to bring into the holiest of holy places the Ark of the Covenant, that beautiful box that held the Ten Commandments. Oh, we've known about that box a long time. I mean, Moses, Aaron, Miriam decided that these tablets God had given Moses up on the mountain were so special, they should keep them in a beautiful box. It would have long handles on it so that men could lift it onto their shoulders, and every time the camp was moved to a new place, they could bring this beautiful box. Now they had a capital city. Now they had a temple. They could put that beautiful box into the holiest of holy places where only the high priest went, and he only once a year on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, to ask God, please move from the seat of judgment to the seat of mercy. Forgive us once more. Set us right with you once more. Send us into this new year. The past few Sundays, we've been dealing with that highly dysfunctional family that God chose to be his people Israel, Abraham and Sarah, right on down to Isaac and Rebekah, to the twin sons Jacob and Esau. I dealt with the Jacob stories for several Sundays, but I didn't deal with that part where he first began to run from his brother when Esau realized that Jacob and their mother had tricked him and an aged, almost blind father out of the birthright. He said he was going to kill Jacob. Jacob started running. He eventually ran 400 miles back to his mother's hometown where he worked for 20 years for his mother's brother, his uncle Laban. But on one of those lonely nights when he was running from Esau, he pulled up a rock for a pillow. And after he had gone to sleep, he had a vision of a ladder stretching all the way up to heaven. Jacob didn't climb the ladder. Angels descended and ascended and descended and ascended through the night. And the next morning he woke up and said, Wow. And then he says something that I find very interesting. You remember that at the Jabbok River that we did, with, did deal with a couple of weeks ago, Jacob begged for the name of God. He was not given the name. He gave his name to God. God didn't give his name to Jacob. God would give that special name to Moses more than 400 years later. But since these stories were told around campfires for hundreds of years, even though this younger Jacob doesn't know the name, the storyteller does. The storyteller knows the name. And so that storyteller puts into Jacob's mouth the name. Surely, he says, the Eye Asher Eye, our Elohim, was in this place. And I didn't know it. I didn't know it. But I know it now. I'm going to pile up these rocks right here. I'm going to call this place Bethel, the house of God. And then he started running again to the north. He didn't expect God to be there, but after he piled up those rocks, when his people came back to that spot the next time, they expected God to be there. When I counsel couples who are about to be married here, I say, we're so glad you've chosen to be married at Boston Avenue, United Methodist Church. People believe that God has been coming to meet them in this place for 118 years. We believe he will be here next Saturday at 5 o'clock for you. I expect him to be here, don't you? If we don't expect him, we're wasting our time. We expect him to be here. We ask him to come and be here to bless us, to help us, to strengthen us, to guide us. We ask him to come. Number two, suddenly there was a cloud, a 
cloud, some fog that started moving into the Holy of Holies. All the Jews knew about this cloud. <clears throat> it had guided them 40 years in the desert. And now here it was, so close and so thick, the priests couldn't breathe. They had to get out of there. It was so close, this presence of God. I told you when Gail and I were in New York in May, we went to the Frick Collection. There are enough wonderful paintings there to make that worth a trip any time, but we happened to be there when they were having a special showing of a collection of Rembrandt's works. We've really enjoyed and been blessed by the work of Rembrandt in any number of great museums. We've been to his studio in Amsterdam. He was born a long time ago, 405 years ago in 1606. He lived 63 years. When he was a young artist, he began to paint scenes of Jesus' life. One of his best known is the woman caught in the act of adultery. Jesus is listening to her. Ask her, where are those who condemn you? You remember? Look at the face of Jesus. It's very white, has a high forehead, beautiful chestnut-colored flowing hair. Not the later paintings of Jesus. Not the later paintings. What happened to him? To Rembrandt, I mean. He married a young woman whom he loved with all of his heart. They had four babies, one right after the other. Three of them died. And then his wife suddenly got ill and died. She was 30. In 10 years, he'd lost three out of four babies, and now his wife. Grief-stricken. Suddenly he realized that there in Amsterdam, he was living right on the edge of the largest Jewish community in all Netherlands. And that these Jews had come to Amsterdam because they had been persecuted across Eastern Europe in the pogroms. They had come to Amsterdam. Scholars believe that Rembrandt needed to see the face of Jesus. And suddenly he went back to his roots and thought, God's chosen people were the Jews. He didn't look like Western Europeans, this Jesus. He looked like a Jew. So he started going into the neighborhoods of Amsterdam to find out what did Jesus probably look like and finally talked to one of the young Jewish men and took him, being a model for him. And all the paintings of Jesus after that time, done by Rembrandt, his dark hair, dark beard, olive complexioned, not as tall. But look at the eyes. The eyes of this later Jesus are so kind, so compassionate. Rembrandt in his grief was looking deeper for who Jesus really was. What was God doing in Jesus? And he saw, if you would, this cloud, this hovering cloud of the presence of the Almighty. Number three, it says, Solomon stood and spoke. Same reason I say we stand in the presence of God's Word. God was the superior. Solomon stood in his presence. Another way we show proper reverence, of course, is by kneeling. Last Sunday we had Holy Communion. As I served at both 8.30 and 11, there were several who came and right in front of me who could no longer kneel. 
In many church bulletins, churches where they have kneelers, you'll see, kneel as you are able. Kneel as you are able. Some church bulletins say, stand as you are able. Having had knee surgery myself in March, I understand this all the better now. There sometimes come times when you don't kneel very well. You may need a little hand getting down or a stronger hand getting back up. But we are not really kneeling because we are able. We are kneeling because we've been enabled, because the grace of God has shown us that we are to kneel before this one who is all compassion, all love, kindness, all strength and power. So Solomon says, can we contain God in this beautiful building? Not a chance. Not a chance. Best we can hope for is that God has chosen to put his name here. But if his name is here, we believe we can come here and pray and he will hear us. And, oh God, even when the foreigners come who are not Jews, he said, if they come to this place, place to pray, we, we pray that you will hear them as well in your highest heaven, that you will hear the prayers of all your people directed toward this place where you've chosen to put your name. Dr. Imlin Ott is a professor at Trinity Lutheran Seminary in Columbus, Ohio. She has recently written about one of her dearest friends, a woman named Linda. They're about the same age. She said, Linda and I were such good buddies that when our 50th birthday came, we decided we both had a little time off. Why didn't we take a road trip together? The kind you see in movies and plays. It's a great time. We got back, ready to go on with the rest of our lives. When Linda started feeling ill, went in for a checkup, she was found to have cancer. She was diagnosed almost immediately as having a very, very aggressive form. She went through all kinds of chemotherapy, radiation, nothing turned it, nothing. Finally, the physician said, hospice is the answer now, hospice. She said, I called her one afternoon recently, and I said, uh, I want to come by and see you. Is there anything at all you'd like to have that I could bring you, anything at all? And she said, I, I'm feeling a little better this afternoon. I want you to come and take me out for strawberry shortcake. She said, I'll be right there. She said, I, I took her out. And we had strawberry shortcake with lots of cream on top. We laughed. I took her back. And that week she dropped precipitously. I got a call that I should come now if I wanted to see her. While she was still living, I rushed over. Now she couldn't even speak. She opened her eyes slightly, looked at me. I was pretty sure she knew who I am. I am a professor, but I'm also an ordained Lutheran pastor. This is my friend. I'm also her pastor. So I chatted with her a few minutes about some of the really great times we'd had. It was time for me to go. I didn't know just what to do. But suddenly I reached out my thumb and I put it on her forehead and I started down and then I moved it across. And her eyes opened and she took a deep breath inside and closed her eyes. It's all we really know about death and life after death. This cross, 
It's all we need to know. Amen.